This week, the Institute of Ideas held a public debate at Goodenough College in London, which asked what would be the deciding factors in the European referendum. The following podcast is a recording of that event in full. The chair is Claire Fox. This debate is entitled European Referendum, What Will Decide the Vote? The Institute of Ideas, uh, when we conceived of this, what we all felt was that we wanted to have a discussion that really did try and get to grips with what might help you make a decision about how to vote in the forthcoming referendum. I do think this is an important debate because there's a range of prejudices that have lurked around it that I hope that we can dispense with. I've noticed that in a lot of the debates, people have said that young people are unlikely to vote, and if they do vote, they'll all vote remain, because according to the Education Secretary, they're interested in interrailing. So the Institute of Ideas made a decision that, first of all, it was insulting to the young to imagine that they weren't going to vote in this very important debate, and that, secondly, they might be able to get beyond the notion of interrailing uh, to work out the principles on which they would vote. We also wanted to organise a debate that went beyond uh, the usual echo chambers in terms of audiences. There's nothing wrong, of course, with lots of people who uh, agree with one side or another getting together and... Uh, you know, urging each other on and so on. But we have explicitly aimed tonight at the undecideds. And I know that some of you uh, are undecided. It's, if you are here and you're pretty sure which side of the debate you're on, that's, you're allowed in, that's fine. Um, but see this as an opportunity to persuade people in your midst of the arguments, because I do know that the majority of you have not yet uh, made your mind up. And I do think that uh, there's a lot to play for in terms of this Referendum. I, I don't think that it is clear at all what's going to happen. And, of course, there's lots of time before the vote happens as well, but opinion felt, uh, polls fluctuate madly. But just to, to give you an example, I know that there's one person here at least who had kind of tortuously gone through working out uh, what it was that they were going to do um, and eventually decided to vote Remain and then watched Brexit the movie online and then has changed their mind and then thinks, oh, God, I'm so hopeless, I can't decide. But, I mean, nonetheless, that's one side. On the other hand, another colleague of mine uh, has been hostile to the EU for many years, absolutely committed to the Brexit position, but has actually been put off by what she considers to be a kind of xenophobic little Englander anti-immigrant tone to the Brexit side. So you'll see that even those people who think they know what they're going to do are not so sure. And in that sense, I hope that we can take this debate seriously, not just tonight, but as a kind of spur to uh, really consider the important arguments. I thought it was kind of indication of of how confusing things are when Paul Mason in The Guardian uh, yesterday uh, wrote an article entitled The Left-Wing Case for Brexit in brackets one day. In other words, he then writes an article that's completely for Brexit, but then says, but not now. And you do think, helpful, moving on. Um, But, you know, we've had all sorts of illusions. Hitler in the Second World War, threats of the Third World War. David Cameron today has said that the leader of ISIS would support Brexit. Um, There is a kind of sense in which Project Fear lurks. I'm not having a go at one side in this because I have to say that, as those of you who know me, I'm much more in favour of Brexit than the other side, but I have been in despair at how the Brexit side has whipped up fear as well. And so... I I can't say that anyone at the moment is coming through this 
entirely uh, without blemish. So we are going to try and change things a little bit tonight. We asked um, people to consider in, in terms of the panel that kind of what kind of issues should make you think about how you vote. Democracy and sovereignty, the economy, uh, immigration, generational issues. And then there's something of the negative voting which has lurked around, which is, you know, people say, how can you be Brexit, you're on Trump's side? Or the other side say, how can you be uh, remain your, you know, your Labour and you're on Cameron's side, all that. You know, is that a helpful way of sorting anything out? We don't think so, but we're going to try and pull some of this apart. I've asked the uh, speakers to speak for seven to eight minutes each, and then I'm going to ask them all to kind of pick up one thing of one of their fellow speakers after that, just informally say, I disagree with something that somebody else has said. And then really what we want to do is to go straight out to the audience as quickly as possible. The idea is, is that we'll take four or five thoughts and then I'll just come back to the panel after four or five and get them to pick up whatever they want from that. Then go back out, then back and forward, right? This is meant to be a public conversation. And I don't want anyone in this room to think that they're absolutely dead certain, know exactly what they think or be closed-minded. The idea is, is that we are a grown-up uh, group of people who are going to try and get to grips with this question tonight and work it through. And we won't solve it all tonight, but hopefully it will give you the basis for having the arguments that you will need to have in the next month or so uh, before you have the vote. And anyway, straight after this, we're going to the pub. Now, we've got a really uh, fantastic panel. First of all, we've got uh, Right Honourable David Davis, who's a Conservative MP for uh, Holton Price and Howden, uh, former Foreign Office Minister and Shadow Home Secretary. But I think for many of us, is famed really for the fantastic work that he's done over the years on civil liberties uh, and fighting on freedom issues, and that's certainly a way that I have most admired him. He's never actually spoken on a, a, an Institute of Ideas panel debate before, um, and he doesn't know this, but actually we don't generally ask MPs uh, onto our panels because they're always a bit dull. Uh, so I hope that he sees it as a compliment. Uh, he sees it as I, a compliment. I shall live up to the expectation. Yeah. He sees it as a compliment that we don't think he's going to kind of dish out a load of sound bites and that we think that he can kind of join in the conversation in a different kind of way. The next person we'll hear from is Vicky Price, who is internationally renowned economist who many of you will already know, the former joint head of the UK Government Economic Service, uh, the author of Greekonomics and a new book in the provocation series for Bite Back, Why Women Need Quotas, which I disagree with her on, but it's like a fantastic uh, provocation. Also, uh, Vicky is a regular speaker at uh, Institute of Ideas events and keeps getting invited back every year uh, uh, by popular demand. So it's great to have you, uh, as always, Vicky. Then we'll be hearing from Bruno Waterfield, uh, who is the Brussels correspondent of The Times, co-author of a pamphlet on the very issue of Europe called No Means No. He's been reporting on European affairs for over 15 years and since 2003 from Brussels itself. He again is a Battle of Ideas Festival regular speaker and also a regular speaker at our residential academy uh, where we go and have uh, two days of, to really dig into some of the intellectual issues of the day. Uh, but the main thing is, is that the reason he gets those invites is because he's always insightful and makes me think, so it's great to have him here. And then finally, uh, Simon Nixon, who's the chief European uh, commentator for the Wall Street Journal, 
which he joined uh, in 2008. He was previously European editor of Heard on the Street. He was a city editor of uh, The Week, uh, founding editor of Money Week. And uh, he's here because Simon has also spoken at lots of our events before, but the main thing is, is that I absolutely disagree with him on Europe. <laughs> But I, he's the most interesting person that I ever disagree with. And whenever he writes his articles, he's always like annoying, because I always think, oh, he's made a really good point there. Uh, so we consider him to be a worthy opponent. Can we give a very warm welcome uh, to the OK, uh, David, let me ask you to kick off, please. OK, thanks, Claire. Um, Claire told you I was the Europe Minister, I think, quite years ago, or nearly that. And although I was known in the French press as Monsieur Non, and in the German press as Herr Niet, and the ladies in the room, I won't tell you what the Spanish press said about me, um, I was always on that side of the argument. I always thought that we could somehow rescue the European Union from its anti-democratic tendencies. But after 20 years, I've decided to side with Einstein. <coughs> Uh, who said, you know, if you keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result, that's the definition of insanity. So I've come down to the conclusion we have to, at long last, leave. And the reason why is not immigration, it's not money, ec economics, although they're all important, it's democracy. This is an incredibly anti-democratic organisation. The test of a democratic organisation is that you can sack the government. The government in Europe is the commission, uh, and you simply can't sack them, even when they were all found effectively guilty of corruption, or nearly all, except Neil Kinnock, um, they didn't go. Uh, what's more, they are made up of people whose qualification appears to be they've been rejected by their own population. Um, I know I appointed Neil Kinnock uh, back in 1997. But the real test of a democracy is not that. The real test of a democracy is how does it treat people? And if I want to uh, really give you a single example, I'll give you Greece. Here is a country which has had imposed upon it the destruction of 25% of its economy, the ruination of the lives of 60% of its young people, uh, the uh, hammering of its public services that make George Osborne look like a complete wimp, um, uh, the hospitals closed, doctors driven abroad, uh, infant mortality rates up, all the rest of it. If we did this in Britain to a part of our country, Lancashire, say, I speak as a Yorkshireman, um, uh, then, then uh, we, the government would fall, and properly so. Uh, but it, gets, it happens in Europe without uh, us being able to do anything about it. And the simple truth is that many of the countries tolerate it, I think, because of their history. Uh, we are different. I mean, I, it was very obvious to me when I was in the Council of Ministers, we're different. I mean, when... Germany and Italy came in, they had had dictatorships and defeat. When Spain came in, it was after Franco. Uh, when uh, Portugal came in, it was after Catano. When the Greeks came in, it was after the colonels. When the uh, Poles, Hungarians, all the Eastern Europeans came in, it was after Soviet domination. For, so for them, it's modernity. For them, it's a sort of democracy. We came in after 150 years of liberal democracy. We have a higher test, and I'm afraid it doesn't really meet it. For me, the nation-state is a moral concept because it's a democratic uh, and this fails. So that's point one. Point two, the benefits that are often uh, uh, cited for the European Union. In 1973, when we joined, it was the right decision. We were a country which was broken down and old and weeping on our history. 
the European Union was growing. And for 20 years, we gained from that. For 20 years, we uh, had a bigger, uh, had the simple measure, we had an increase in our exports to the European Union uh, up until the late 80s or early 90s. And then it changed. And we went from the common market era, which was successful for us, to what I guess you can call a single market era. And in that period, we have done no better than people outside the European Union in terms of exports. In fact, in some senses, worse. Worse than America, worse than Canada, Norway, you know, uh, Switzerland, you name it. And the reason for all, there are all sorts of reasons. Part of it's a regulatory structure of the single market, which is not a free market, no matter how it's described. Some of it was because the common external tariff barrier around Europe came down after something called the Uruguay Round, the creation of the World Trade Organization. But also because the world has shrunk. Container traffic's made it cheap to bring things so that most of the things we buy uh, in the electronic stores and the toy stores come from the Far East. You know? The internet shrunk the world so we can get services from India or, for that matter, parts of Africa, Senegal. So the simple truth is that the future of the world and the success of the future of the world belongs to those people who have a global perspective, not a regional one. And that is the one I would argue for. The third argument, in very simple terms, is the argument about what will happen after Brexit. Now, I have to say, I'm unimpressed by a club that says, if you leave and stop paying the membership fees, we will punish you. That appears to be the major argument on the Remain side. Hopefully not tonight, but in, the, in terms of the official Remain campaign. You know, we will not trade with you. We will force you outside the tariff barrier. We will make you meet these regulations. We will not take your goods. Most of this is nonsense. Frankly, I would not join a club uh, for which that was the membership rules. Well, but that's not the decision in front of us. So we're also told it's an unknown. How many people in this room play chess? Well, a few of you. you. You'll know that you can look at a chess position sometimes, a chess board, and know that one side has won and one side has lost. But what you can't do is forecast the exact outcome, how the final checkmate will be forced. You know the forcing moves, but you don't know how the response will go. And that's where we are here. And you know, I've negotiated with the Europeans for about five years. I'm moderately familiar with them. And we'll have a whole load of hysteria after uh, Brexit Day on 23rd. That'll be its name when it's a national holiday. Um, <laughs> and and, uh, uh, and uh, we'll have a whole lot of hysteria from the French in particular, but from others too. And, the, uh, and then that'll die down after a while, and people will start thinking of their own national interest. And you hear lots of bogus statistics about this. Let me just tell you as a parable. Let's imagine in a moment of fantasy that David Cameron appoints me his negotiator. I would not stop at Brussels... My first trip would be to Berlin. And I'd go to Angela Merkel, and I'd tell her something that you could check by walking outside on the street and counting the cars. One in four of them are Audis, BMWs, Mercedes, Volkswagens. They're the ones with the smoke trail behind. And the, and the simple truth is, I would say to Angela, I want you, Angela, to be able to sell a quarter of our market, the fastest growing, second biggest car market in Europe. I want you to be able to sell to us completely free and unfettered without tariffs. That's what I want. But World Trade Organization rules mean you'll face a 10% tariff if that's what we're doing. So I want your help in ensuring that we can do a deal which opens up our markets to each other. 
And guess who's the most powerful person in Europe? Angela Merkel. And at the end of the day, if Angela Merkel wants something to happen, it happens. So that's the, that's the, um, uh, the, the sort of approach I take. We can talk later in more detail if you want. I'm in my last minute, so I'm just simply going to say this. We're a country which is in the top four or five economies in the world. We're in the G7. We're a permanent member of the UN Security Council. We're a leading member of the Commonwealth. We're a leading member of NATO. We have some of the best intelligence agencies and, uh, and military power in the world. We owe none of that to the European Union. We owe it to our history, our institutions, our tradition, our freedom. The idea that we cannot stand up and find our own way in the world speaking the English language, that's the language of engineering, science, medicine, law, commerce, around the whole world, with one and a half billion people speaking our language, is simply ridiculous. I look forward to the 23rd of June, or actually the 24th of June, when we find out our country's decided to vote for freedom. Thank you. Okay, David, great start. Okay, Vicky, your thoughts, please. Thank you very much. Um, it's interesting, you can't get away from talking about Greece for some reason. Uh, and of course, for those of you who can instantly recognize accents, I am Greek, and I have written quite a lot about it. And it's interesting how a country that indeed was suffering, as it has been suffering, nevertheless votes all the time to stay in the euro, which I've never been in favour of, because of course that means it stays in the EU. It considers the safety of being in this big region to be much more important than anything that it has suffered. And I think that's worth bearing in mind as we continue this debate. So I wanted to talk about the economy. I mean, it's interesting everything we just heard uh, from David Davis about how being part of this Europe has uh, kept us back. Uh, certainly that is the implication. And yet here we are, one of the fastest growing economies in the developed world. And here we are also, if you're looking at the whole regulation framework, being one of the least regulated in our product markets and service markets country in the world. Somehow or other we seem to manage this, despite the shackles of Europe. And the growth that we have seen relies an awful lot on what our relationship with Europe has been. Trade is very important for the UK economy. This is a huge market of 500 million people. I know everyone keeps talking about this, but I'm afraid it is very important. In a big market, what companies have to do is compete, and compete very aggressively. In a big market where tariffs have been removed, and where there is free movement of these goods, and where there are standards which regulation imposes, which we support very considerably, which make it very easy for us to sell the same product across all the countries in the EU. This type of trade is very beneficial to the productivity of the economy. We may not be doing fantastically well right now in terms of productivity, but neither are any of the other countries that we compete against, certainly not the developed ones. But our productivity and therefore our growth would have been considerably lower if we didn't have that trade boost that we have been enjoying for quite some time. In fact, for a considerable time now. So what does it do? Not only does it add jobs, but of course because we attract a huge amount of foreign direct investment due to our proximity with Europe, productivity is enhanced that way. Academic studies have proved again and again that the benefits that we have in terms of trade 
and foreign direct investment can be directly translated to higher growth in the economy than would otherwise be the case. So you could say, of course, that we could do very well by selling to others. Well, nothing stops us. In fact, we sell more to the rest of the world than we do to Europe, certainly in terms of goods. Nothing stopped us, really, from doing so. And we have been quite successful in achieving that ourselves, despite being part of this. In fact, it is not despite, it is because. What has been going on is in order to be competitive in Europe, we have become competitive more generally. We are more competitive in terms of being able to sell internationally than would otherwise have been the case, because we have been forced to innovate. Economies of scale generally mean that, of course, we can produce more at a lower average cost, with the result, of course, that we are able to exploit uh, some of the markets out there, but also it makes us constantly need to innovate in order to keep the profit margins going. And it also means that firms, small firms, can start at any point without being prohibited from doing so. There are still different regulations in different countries, which would be nice not to have them, different VAT registrations and so on, but you can see the benefits for anyone of being able to start a business and not have that type of bureaucracy, different bureaucracy in each country to deal with. And that is, in fact, what the European Union achieves through the work of the European Commission. And the European Commission, by the way, is not the government of Europe. It is just its Whitehall arm, if you like. It's basically exercising the will of the politicians who are in the European Parliament and in the Council of Ministers. So trade has therefore been beneficial, and any alternative, all the economists who've looked at the alternatives that we could have if we were to vote to leave, suggest that actually we'd be worse off than would otherwise be the case. And even those Brexiters who think that perhaps in the end we'll be fine, agree that the short-term shock will be significant, but that we'll be fine in the end, keeping fingers crossed, that perhaps the Europeans will agree to have a deal with us which will actually take us back again to where we would have been anyway. But of course, we would lose things in the meantime. We would lose this 10 billion mythical figure that we now contribute net to Europe. It would disappear in a second if we have the technical recession, which the governor of the Bank of England thought was quite likely if we were to leave the EU. So all this is very positive, including, of course, the movement of people. Why is Europe good? It is because it allows for a free movement of capital goods, services. Actually, we still have a long way to go in services, and if that market is completed, we in the UK will benefit hugely because we are comparatively stronger than many other countries in services. Digital, financial, energy, and so on. So, it's not just goods, of course, and services. It's also capital, and it is people. A lot of what is going on right now in the EU referendum has to do with migration. It has to do with a slight xenophobia we seem to have developed recently. And yet, we have full employment in this country. And there is no doubt, despite some claims from the other side, that migrants contribute positively to the economy. The Office of Budget Responsibility, which accompanied the, the recent budget and also the autumn statement, which was a long-term comprehensive spending review, looking at, ahead in the next few years, calculated that without migration at over 200,000 a year net, we would have a higher deficit to GDP ratio, a higher debt to GDP ratio. So in other words, we'd be worse off fiscally and we wouldn't have the growth than would otherwise be the case. So migration works. Migration has helped that economy grow. Migrants tend to put more into the economy than they take out. So this is another of the myths 
that has been pushed by the Leave side. So let me then finish by saying that certainly for those who are young here, but also for those who have an employment, it is businesses that create those jobs. It is businesses that allow for the redistribution of the money and revenue that's collected to the National Health Service, social care, mental health, schools, transport, etc., etc. And businesses are not divided in this, whatever you may hear. There are some businesses which seem to be quite happy to leave, but the majority are not. Every survey that has been done suggests that there is a majority for staying in, irrespective of any changes that may happen in Europe, because it is good for business and for growth, whether it is the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, or whether it is the British Chambers of Commerce, whether it is the Institute of Directors, quite a right-wing organisation, uh, if I may say so, and whether it is uh, EEF, which is the Manufacturer Association, the majority want to stay. And there must be a reason. And the reason is the one that I've been telling you before. Without full access to the markets and taking and benefiting from what may happen next in terms of further integration in various areas, we would be poorer as a nation, less prosperous and much more isolated. Thank you. Thanks, Vicky. Uh, packed full of information and ideas there, so plenty to kind of go over afterwards. Okay, Bruno, your thoughts. Elections change nothing. Elections change nothing. That was Wolfgang Schäuble, the German finance minister, uh, last year um, when the Greeks had voted for an anti-austerity party. And in a nutshell, uh, Mr. Schäuble had expressed um, the EU's um, ideology, it's great organising uh, principle and aspiration and you can see why it's so appealing to elites thou shalt not vote against the EU treaty all 223 pages of policies and rules covering economic life to civil liberties thou shalt not vote against and your parliament shall not strike down anything in the Aki communautaire, all 80,000 pages of the EU's bodies to spell it out for you, Jean-Claude Juncker, the President of the European Commission, said again last year, there can be no democratic choice against the European treaties. Of course, lest we forget, the current Lisbon Treaty is more or less identical to the EU Constitution. That's the one rejected by French and Dutch voters in 2005, votes which were ignored. Thou shall not vote on how to spend the national wealth or legislate economic policy against that set in Brussels or Frankfurt. This is the case in the euro. Why is the euro important for us here in Britain? Because it is the highest point of EU integration. It embodies the EU's elections-change-nothing ideology. Euro spending rules will be, quote, binding and valid forever, said Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, in 2012 when she was inaugurating the fiscal pact. Never will you be able to change from through a parliamentary majority. Disgracefully, this remorseless logic, as he calls it, is defended by Cameron and the Remain camp, many of whom still secretly support Euro membership, of course. Political elites have learned that moving decision-making from the national to the EU supranational level renders the conduct of statecraft less sub subject to the disruption that comes from democratic accountability. It is thus that the EU emancipates states, officialdom and elites from societies, the peoples, 
nations. By divorcing policy and statecraft from public interest and locking it up in treaties and acquis communautaire, politics is placed over, above and beyond the reach of the citizens of a territory, a people or nation. It removes politics from the democratic public sphere of contest to a new realm of closed statecraft, of diplomatic secrecy and etiquette that is the world of EU's decision-making at summits. This is a wholly negative development. It's entirely regressive and does much to undo the fragile gains um, that democracy uh, made uh, in the 20th century. The EU overthrows the ideas that institutions or policies can be changed. The whole point of a contested national election in a representative democracy is a possibility to reverse the policies of a previous government, even to reform or abolish institutions of state, such as hereditary legislators, dictators, empires, or indeed EU treaties. Remember, elections change nothing. The EU mistrusts us, the peoples of Europe. This is why it exists. Its real foundational moment wasn't the end of World War II, but a reunification of Germany. And the fear shared by the country's own elites of German voters. Today we are told again and again, Juncker one day, Cameron the next, today Donald Tusk, that abolishing the EU will lead to war. The EU is seen as the highest authority standing above all European nations and peoples. It is all that can save Europe from war by stopping us, the peoples of Europe, taking the wrong decisions. People got upset when Boris Johnson uh, mentioned uh, Hitler, and of course he got it arse over tit. He is always, almost always completely wrong. But the entire EU is based on and obsessed with the idea that if irrational and passion-ridden voters are left to their own devices, they'll vote for another Hitler. The reunification of Germany, for me the single most exciting historical moment in my life, was viewed with dread by European elites. Operating under a sort of political precautionary principle, EU institutions such as the Euro were rushed into existence to shackle Germany. It was not idealism, it was the opposite, mistrust and misanthropy. The EU as we know it today was designed to fetter nations on the basis that, like Germans, we, the peoples of Europe, might vote for another Hitler unless stopped by a higher authority. Experts, judges, officials, diplomats in the EU can be trusted. We, the voters, cannot be. As Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, that's the regular summits of the EU leaders, said this morning, the only alternative to the Union is political chaos. The return to national ego egoisms and, in consequence, the triumph of anti-democratic tendencies which can lead to history repeating itself. Brexit is, in, is fascism, in other words. To conclude, Europe's culture of risk uh, aversion, assuming the Hitler-loving worst of us, the voters, means that institutions are clinging to dysfunctional or outdated rules and refusing reform. Look at the Eurozone. In the sense of true political experimentation or alternatives. Think about all the leaps in ideas, including science and technology, that have transformed the world and our lives for the better. Leaps that often cut against the grain of risk aversion. Experiments and innovations that often sparked dire warnings from those in the status quo. 
Imagine if every political innovation had been subjected to the risk test of the experts, the officials and elites, the IMFs who run things. Almost all were alarmed by the idea of universal suffrage 200 years ago. Back in the 19th century, democracy campaigners were told by the dukes, the lords and magistrates it would end in chaos, pillage, murder and the massacres of the French terror. At Peterloo, people were cut down with sabres for only asking for a vote. Arguments for and against the EU are fundamentally about the constitution of politics. Constitutional in the true sense of the word, about the nature of politics, who participates in politics and for whom political structures are organised. So this debate divides people into two camps. Those like me and other freedom-loving Democrats who want to take the risk and the responsibility for running our own lives and trust others to be like us. Against us are those who don't see it like that. Those such as the EU supporters who want to diminish the scope for us to take control of our own lives because they believe allowing people to determine their own lives is too dangerous or risky. Let's have politics and a vote for a change against the EU. Let's make it Brexit Day next month. Stirring stuff, Bruno, uh, but also plenty to argue about whether those risks are worth it, so we can interrogate that shortly. Okay, so the final formal introduction then is from Simon. Uh, thanks very much, Claire. So uh, it's my turn to speak from the anti democratic, <laughs> proto fascist <laughs> EU side. <isn't> it? <laughs> I think there's a bit of a hole at the heart of this debate, uh, not just this debate, sorry, but you know, generally the Brexit debate. You know, I, I, I think these issues about economics and trade deals and democracy, they're, they're all very important, but I think you know, ultimately there's a, these are second-order issues compared to the core issue for me, which is we need to understand what does the EU do and where is it going? Because if it's doing the wrong things and it's going to the wrong place, then clearly we should be out of it, obviously. So, um, so we, need to understand, uh, we need to understand what it's actually for. I have to say, I think that the Brexit side of this debate, egged on, I'm sorry to say, by some sections of the media, are trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. I think they're trying to mislead people about the nature of this European project. On the one hand, one minute they tell us that the EU is trying to become a giant superstate, and the next minute they blame it for the failures of nation states. They fail it for not already being a superstate. So they blame the, the people of the Brexit camp blame the EU for they blame the EU for Greece's failure to manage its borders. They blame the EU for Belgium's inability to run a police system. They blame the EU for Italy's inability to reform its banks. So, I, you know, the, so the, the Brexit seem to be confused. Is the EU too mighty or is it too feeble? They seem to blame it for everything that goes wrong in Europe in the last quarter of a century and give it no credit for anything that goes right. Let me just tell you where I'm coming from in this. I'm not some starry-eyed Europhile, Euro-federalist, Euro-fascist or whatever. I actually, my first job after university was uh, helping Bill Cash write an anti-Maastricht pamphlet. It's not something I admit to very often, I have to admit. <laughs> Uh, if there'd been a referendum on joining the Euro, I can tell you I would have been against it. But I spent quite many years as a financial journalist, and the one thing that 
I became quite convinced of in that time was that the creation of a single market was an enormous economic benefit to the UK. And more than that, that the UK was the single biggest beneficiary of the creation of the single market, and, of course, and the euro too, for that matter. Uh, you can see that in the, in the enormous amounts of foreign investment that have come into the UK over the last 25 years. We're the single biggest destination for foreign investment. And I saw it very close at hand in the transformation of a city over 20 years from a primarily domestic capital market into Europe's financial centre. An, an astonishing uh, tra transformation in our biggest industry. Uh, so uh, I think it's absurd to say that European regulation holds the UK economy back. We've got the most, second most competitive labour market in the world. We have, uh, we're one of the countries that ranks one of the highest in the world on the ease of doing business. If EU regulations were a problem to exporting to a global markets, then how come Germany's doing so well with the same regulations? How come Italy? How come Spain? David says that uh, the UK uh, points out that the UK is the fifth biggest market and economy in the world and could easily survive outside the EU. I would turn it the way around. I'd say we're the fifth biggest economy in the world because we're in the EU. For my mind, the economic arguments of brave that staying in the EU are overwhelming, but they're actually not for me the most important. For me, and I come back to this question of what is the EU for? In my current job, I spend a lot of time travelling around Europe going to different countries, trying to see Europe through the eyes of different parts, different parts of Europe and trying to understand the challenges Europe faces from the perspectives of different parts of, the, different parts of this continent. And the one thing I can say is that I've never met a European Federalist. Not one. Maybe there are some in Brussels lurking around that Bruno's met, but I've not met them. And I've not met them in Berlin. I've not met them in Paris. I've not met them in Lisbon. I've not met them in Warsaw. Any other capital you care to mention. There is no grand project. If there ever was a project to create a European superstate, it died at least a decade ago. There isn't a project to create a European superstate. What I see when I go around Europe is political leaders struggling to cope with extraordinary challenges. We live in the most extraordinary times. And those challenges are quite different to the challenges that David faced in the 1990s or Margaret Thatcher faced in the 1980s. We're facing challenges of incredible instability in Europe's neighbourhood, of unprecedented migration, of terrorism, Russian aggression on our eastern borders, of the eastern borders of the EU, climate change, and of course we're facing the challenges of slow growth, which in turn reflect very real economic challenges such as demographic pressures and the impact of new technologies. So the question should be, uh, and what I, so I think that the way to look at the EU is not as some grand project to create a super state. It's a mechanism by which the most unstable multi-ethnic space on this planet can deal with common challenges. It's a way in which the democratically elected sovereign governments of Europe can get together and through diplomacy and through politics and through the rule of law try and respond to real issues. And so the question that we need to ask when we're thinking about whether the UK should stay in the EU is, is the EU still a useful way of solving common challenges? That's the question at the heart of this debate. And I would argue that it is. I would argue that even though it is difficult for the EU with, to get 28 sovereign states to agree on challenges, it's much, uh, they have over the last few years proved time and again that it's possible to find common solutions. They found com the migration coming across from Greece has dropped to a trickle in the last few months. Uh, the Turkey deal, you may not like it, but it's, a, it's holding. The neighborhood, there is, the EU is working to try and stabilize the neighborhood. There are, uh, in Somalia, 
in, uh, in the Balkans and now in trying to work in Libya. It's done quite a lot of work in trying to stabilize the EU economy. People say the EU can't reform. It created a bailout fund, a banking union. It, you know, it's, uh, the, it's given new powers to the ECB to try and stabilize the European economy. Common challenges, common solutions. And I will just make one more point, which is that does anybody really think that the Europe or the UK would be better able to, sort, to try and manage these common crises and common problems outside of the EU? When David Cameron suggested the other day that we might be, that leaving the EU might cause instability in Europe, he was ridiculed. But if you won't take it from David Cameron, take it from Michael Gove. Michael Gove, one of the leading Brexit people, says that he doesn't just want, he doesn't just think that the EU will collapse and the euro will collapse if we leave the EU, he wants it to collapse. He said he wants to liberate Europe. He says, yes, there will be contagion. That's one of his goals. Is that really, is that really how uh, the Brexit campaign thinks that Europe, that Britain's prosperity and security and stability can be guaranteed? How is Michael Gove going to deliver this liberation of Europe? No one in Europe wants it. No mainstream political party wants it. The only way he can deliver it is by creating the conditions by which Marine Le Pen, Gert Wilders, and the fascists of Jobbik and Golden Dawn can come to power in Europe. If Michael Gove is right, then Project Fear isn't fearful enough. We're nowhere near terrified enough yet. These sober assessments from all these reputable international organizations that say that the economy will suffer if we're out of the EU are all dependent on the EU carrying on existing, on a steady state EU. If Michael Gove is right, Brexit is going to be a disaster for everybody in Europe. And so I would just finish on one last point. Back in 2001, Dave, Tony Blair stood up uh, shortly after the 9-11, <clears throat> and he said, the kaleidoscope has been shaken. Now let's reorder the world. We know what happened next. Fifteen years later, the Middle East is in flames. The West has been fundamentally weakened. Many of the same neoconservatives who were the cheerleaders for Tony Blair in the Iraq war are the same neoconservatives who are the primary Brexiteers now. For goodness sake, let's not shake the kaleidoscope again. Okay, so um, I'm going to come over to, to David to see if he wants to pick anything up. Right, so you know when I said that uh, when we started, because I said, you know, we have to be careful about Project Fear being drilled. That doesn't mean that somebody's not allowed to say that bad things could happen. Otherwise, we'd be having a happy, clappy meeting, right? So there are such things as right-wing fascists in Eastern European countries as we speak just because they're not round the corner. So you are allowed to mention them. So I can just see people sort of going, oh, we mentioned bad things and said bad things would happen. Uh, that's not the basis of that. So when I kind of come to the speakers now, I'm going to ask you to pick up things. But then, audience, I'd really like you to kind of be able to consider that you can think out loud. Don't really have to do a prepared speech or anything. If you're not sure of anything, if you want to just try out an argument, just put your hand up. And, you know, you might get to it more than once or anything. So get ready because I'm going to come out. But anyway, David, is there anything you want to pick up that you've heard from this side, first of all? Yeah, when I stopped chuckling at being compared with Tony Blair, you know, I, I, was, I led the rebellion that stopped the 2013 bombing of, uh, of Syria. So uh, that's amusing. And Blair, of course, will come out for the EU next week. However, I want to deal with one, one issue which uh, both the Remain speakers lifted, which was the, the issue of the economy. 
simple truth is, in terms of inward investment, by the way, uh, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the Norwegian model or the Swiss model, but Norway and Switzerland leave us all standing when you look at uh, inward investment per capita. They even leave us all standing if you take out gas and oil for, for Norway. They even leave us all standing if you take out uh, financial services for, for Switzerland. Uh, inward investment does not depend on being within the EU. And there's a reason for that. We heard about this deregulatory nirvana that it's supposed to be. The problem with the EU is it's driven by big corporate interest. And I'll give you a couple of examples to demonstrate what I'm talking about. These regulations are not sort of plucked out of the air as platonic means. If a big business finds a problem, it'll go to the Commission and it'll get it to fix it for it. So, for example, when Dyson created a new sort of vacuum cleaner, the vacuum cleaner manufacturers went to the Commission and said, we need the regulations to be rewritten in a certain way in order to favour, frankly, their own vacuum cleaners. How they do it? If you look at the, t the power tests on vacuum cleaners now, they're power tests done in a dust-free environment. That's how you test uh, vacuum cleaners in Europe, in a dust-free environment. Why? Because it favours uh, conventional vacuum cleaners. Um, when vaping, this week, when uh, vaping was, uh, uh, came up, you know, the, using uh, artificial cigarettes, e-cigarettes, which will probably save more lives than many pharmaceutical drugs. The pharmaceutical companies addressed the commission and said, can we have them put under medical requirements and limited? So actually people are going to die because they don't come off smoking as a result. I can do the same for you about diesels. I can do the same for you about use of drugs. This, this regulatory scam actually harms the consumer, harms small business, and favours big business. I don't want to be a part of that. Thank you. OK, thank you. Vicky, what, is there anything you want to pick up? Don't clap him yet. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, Vicky, anything you want to pick well, up uh, from you've heard? Perhaps I'd, I'd just talk about that, what we've just been hearing, because, of course, uh, David Davis uh, luckily wrote about this and Dyson uh, <laughs> in, his co in a column in the, in the Times, and, uh, and I chuckled when I read it, I have to admit, uh, where suddenly was all to the benefit of the big businesses. Um, as I've already... Uh, mentioned, the majority of small firms want to stay in as well. Uh, so it's not just big firms. And what, in fact, the Commission has achieved through its competition policy, and what we have achieved as being part of the EU, is having a level playing field across Europe. Yes, there are some vested interests that actually uh, managed to get their way for a bit. I mean, the Germans tried to do something with their tractors, which we managed to stop them doing, uh, because we were able to go back to the Commission and say, no, that's actually a, a protectionist move from them. Um, but interestingly, you know, the farmers, um, BSE, uh, for a while, of course, our meat was not allowed to be imported in Europe because there were dangers. Uh, but within a few months, it was allowed again because under EU rules, you couldn't stop uh, meat from coming once it was declared to be healthy. We could not and still have great difficulty selling it to, to the US, which would have banned and, uh, and, and which has lasted for years. So, so there are loads of advantages in, in being there. And of course... What tends to happen at the end of the day is that prices go down. I, and it is worth, however much of an example it is, again and again, that airline fares have gone down. Why have they gone down? Not because of some amazing change in the climate that happened by itself. It's because the Commission, with our push, went for open sky policy, which meant that anyone in Europe and anyone from wherever, including the Norwegians, could actually go and, and set up shop anywhere in Europe and uh, 
ferry people or fly people around the, the whole of the continent wherever they wanted to. From. And that, of course, has led to a huge increase in passenger uh, numbers and a really serious decline in real terms in our fares. That's just one example of, of how that works. It also means that anyone from anywhere can now compete across Europe. Uh, and, of course, that means bigger profits, more opportunities, and for people too to move around and, uh, and, and benefit from that. So, so it, to say that it's done for the elites is crazy, especially at a time when uh, it is only because of the Commission that the, uh, the Amazons of this world have to, 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 uh, are under scrutiny, that Microsoft has said to do all sorts of things that they wouldn't have done in the US, uh, and all that to the benefit of us, including, of course, what's going on right now in terms of forcing the mobile operators to reduce... Uh, roaming charges, which benefit all of us. Okay, thanks, Becky. All right, so, Bruno, your chance to pick up anything from the other side. Um, you do rarely... It's sad, actually. You do rarely only... You do very rarely meet European Federalists uh, in Brussels nowadays. It's for, it's for forbidden love that dare not speak its name in the corridors um, of Brussels uh, uh, nowadays. Um, I think it's rather sad, actually. European Federalists had some, some good arguments... Um, European Federalists believed in something. Um, they were quite passionate um, about it, but because of the big setbacks um, to their vision in terms of its popularity, they tend to, to bite their tongues. The EU isn't really about a, a Federalist uh, impulse, and, and it really hasn't been, certainly for the last uh, decade or so, not remotely. It is basically um, about the desire of our elites um, who share this in terms of common culture to evade accountability uh, it's not principled it's contingent on being able to evade, to dodge and to duck decisions and sadly sometimes changing social conditions on the ground um, that demand uh, uh, change. So yes you know, they'd love a world where elections change nothing and they've constructed a mainstream political uh, environment, of course, where elections have increasingly meaned nothing. The real problem with the EU isn't a, some sort of overweening superstate, but the fact it has become about structures, institutions, and politics that allow people to deny reality, allow people to avoid taking uh, decisions. The real problem with its response to the migration crisis was outsourcing borders to somebody else in the first place. German voters are entirely right to be upset um, that um, over a million people have turned up in their countries because the border was outsourced to Italy and Greece and everyone knew the problems were long-standing. Similarly, in the Eurozone, difficult economic decisions, uh, restructuring... Um, have been ducked. People hide behind the ECB. National member states, politicians don't take decisions because the Eurozone has become a space in which you can avoid um, decisions. I'm very struck by the rosy um, optimism um, we hear um, on the economy from, from that uh, side of the table. I was very struck um, by the Treasury uh, assumptions that all will be well in the world with no policy change um, for the next 15 years. In Brussels, the view is rather different. They are very, very pessimistic. They don't share the rosy spectacle view. In all the Commission forecasts, they emphasised that downside, 
downside risks for Europe's economies um, increase if policies don't change. Okay, thanks. So, Simon, what do you want to pick up? Well, I'm going to have to pick up on two things. Yeah, oh, very easy. quick. Okay. Tight, yeah. First, well, firstly, look, on this elections don't matter point that Bruno made, look, it, it, you know, it's, it's taking it completely out of context. What the, the comment was made in relation to the bailout deal that Greece signed with uh, its creditors. And you know, the point that Schäuble was making at the time is that governments often enter into contracts or long-term deals or uh, treaties or whatever, and when they do, it's the sovereign signature of the state rather than the government's signature on the contract. If we do a deal with the French government to build Hinkley Point, we can't have a situation where the next government comes along and immediately rips up the contract uh, you know, without, uh, without penalty clauses or whatever. You know, these things, you know, if, you, if you want to tear up the contract, then clearly then you have to start again from scratch. So he was simply making the point that, that just because there's been an election, you can't just tear up the contract and expect to go back to square one again. So, and, and I think this other point is with Greece, is that, um, the, um, that you know, we don't talk about, I mean, lots of countries when they run out of money, some countries recover, like Ireland, now the fastest growing country economy in the world. Some countries go uh, uh, into a tailspin, like Argentina and uh, in Zimbabwe. And the, the issue here is that, uh, in the EU, is that the governments of the EU still have the, leave, the commanding leaders, leave, many of the commanding leaders of the economy, and uh, over tax, over education policy, health policy, you know, what, you know, spending their budgets or whatever. So, so I don't think it's right to say that the EU uh, either ignores democracy or, you know, or tells, tells governments what to do. And I also decided, the other point, but I, want, I just want to, that's side, but I want to pick up this regulation point. You know, look, I, I find it very odd. There's always lobbying. Uh, in any political situation. Do you really think that there isn't lobbying in the United States? Uh, do you think there wouldn't be lobbying uh, by big businesses if the UK was uh, not in the EU? Uh, the example that David gave of, uh, of the Hoover, uh, Dyson, I think is pretty misleading. Basically what happened was that the, uh, he wanted to change the EU regulations, uh, testing rules to suit himself. And, and the EU did change the rules, but not quite uh, to favour him as much as he wanted. Uh, and he threw his toys out of the pram. If they'd changed the rules to favour him completely, I'm sure maybe he, he would have come to a different view on the EU. Um, but I keep hearing all this stuff about... I, I've been asking for years to business people, you know, what are these EU rules that are such an issue? What are the ones that affect your business? And have you, have you noticed that whenever business people turn up on the radio or the telly complaining about EU regulation... They never come up, they never ever talk about anything relating to their own personal business. What they do is they, they recycle the same old hackneyed examples that they've taken from a Boris Johnson column in about 1990. Right. And as we, as we all know by now, most of what's in a Boris Johnson column is made up. So, you know, they just, when I've, when I've asked, when I have investigated these examples, and I've investigated every time Boris writes about one of these or Michael Gove, ring up and try and find out what's at the bottom of it. And every single time, almost without fail, it's either gold plating by the British government or it's a homegrown British regulation that's at the heart of it. So I'm just very, I mean, I'm not in any way denying, disputing the idea that regulation is open to lobbying or that there is, uh, that EU regulation okay. may be burdensome, but I've not yet seen really good evidence of it. Okay, uh, thank you. All right, good. So we've got a sense of... Right. We've got to sense something, right? So I, I, I've already got one hand there. 
Um, and, and my idea is, is that I'll take, as I say, uh, bundles of four or five. Point of correction and a question. Vicky, you listed a number of uh, UK business organisations, the CBI, the IOD, as all being effectively unanimously, from a business perspective, to stay. You didn't. Really sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't say that. I've talked about the. Yeah. Mind. Let me have a go. Oh, well, uh, uh, and uh, you didn't really mention uh, the British Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the British Chamber of Commerce currently polls its members at about 60-40 to stay in. Okay. One of the things that John Longworth was trying to make before he was basically kicked out. Um, was that if you uh, look at poll by the number of employees those organisations have, it's actually about 80-20. So just a simple fact, many small British businesses are part of the British Chamber of Commerce. The vast majority of those, the employees they represent, would actually like to leave. My question... The elephant in the room seems to be there's this assumption that the EU is a really uh, successful, positive uh, organisation. And uh, uh, the journalist from the Wall Street uh, Journal has really emphasised uh, how uh, successful uh, it is, uh, made reference to uh, closing down the uh, immigrants coming from uh, uh, Syria. I mean, I see that as a, basically a threat of EU concentration camps, that policy uh, to close that down. But my question is, um, isn't there an opportunity here for uh, people in Britain to show leadership to other Europeans by, if we leave, how many other countries does the panel feel will have their own referendum within 18 months? At the moment, I've got about six countries would take the opportunity to say, we would like to have a choice to leave as well, because it's not a great uh, institution. Okay, thank you very much. Just like to say, um, I'm a doctor, I'm a consultant psychiatrist working in the NHS, and a lot of my colleagues have described ourselves as reluctant remainers. What I'd like is a couple of points from the Brexiters, maybe more than a couple of points, is what would Brexit and how would it benefit the NHS? Uh, what I'm interested in is how the character of UK national debate is affected in any one time, at any one period in history. And I think uh, under the EU, the, the, the character of national debate is highly stultified. And we have these nanny state policies about, which I'm sure lots of people are aware of, the sugar tax, anti-alcohol, anti-cigarettes, all that business. So I'm just wondering if Brexit could um, help us go against that and whether voting leave will partly help foster a shift towards a more humane politics that Michael Gove is right when he says we are talk what we are talking about is the democratic liberation of the continent. I'm, again, reluctantly part of Remain. I just want to say I'm a little disappointed tonight. I'd hope the Remain side would be a little stronger. No hell's barred it, by the way. Yes. My main problem with Remain is that it's come across in a sort of Islington-y, sneery, let's look down at English people and their silly concerns, and we're not to be taken seriously. I think you've won the economic position, but I think you've lost the democratic one. And when you said to me, we need the EU to stop the bogeymen of the far right, what you were telling me, although I'm no supporter of them, is that we need to stop you speaking and voicing your concerns. You really worry me about democracy, even though I feel you win the economic issue. OK, thank you. This, this lady in the front. 
uh, this lady in the front. Thanks. And just like the gentleman here, I think uh, that the democratic argument is uh, the least unconvincing argument for the Brexit position. Um, but I thought that uh, while the Times journalist's argument was very rhetorically beautiful, um, I also wanted uh, specific arguments or examples of how European Union institutions specifically inhibit democracy. Maybe three specific examples would be very much appreciated. Well, I'm surprised that the Remainers didn't uh, make, you know, make more of Putin. That seems to be everyone's over. And don't forget, Putin wants Britain to leave. I want to, I want to bring up a couple of things, and really to Bruno and David David, that I think haven't been addressed. The problem is the EU ref isn't the consequence of any kind of political movement, okay? It's a consequence of really an intra-elite squabble. Cameron's inability to think more than 20 seconds ahead. That's literally <laughs> what it is. Um, you know, that's absolutely... So there are no political party wants Brexit. Uh, there are no plans. And it's basically a non-issue for most British people. Now, we might say, fine, let's take advantage of that anyway. You know, that's fine. This is the situation that has arisen. But it doesn't... I, I think there is a problem. It doesn't work like that. If this is to work, it has to be the result of a serious democratic popular project that fights and works to reclaim sovereignty. And that isn't what's happening. And I think that is a genuine problem that does need to be addressed. And related to that, I think we have a serious problem in Europe of the absence of the kind of demos. Okay, and the EU is parasitic on that. It is absolutely an anti-democratic institution, but it is also parasitic on the withdrawal of the demos from popular life, and that's a problem. And there just is not a kind of groundswell of popular democratic uh, movement against the EU, even as Vicky Price said, in Greece, it absolutely beggared belief that Greece was clobbered you know it was a soft coup essentially in Greece and still the Greeks didn't leave and so what I'd like <coughs> to Brexit side not that you are either of you particularly representative of the Brexit side is address that problem we cannot magic up a popular will we can't kind of create the situation and hope that the people will kind of rush in in a way this is a kind of putting the cart before the horse or Okay, listen, let me, let, me, let me come to the panel, and then there's loads of you, and I've got loads of time, so don't panic. And the, I, I suppose I wanted to ask you a very good point about the nanny state, and I broadly agree with everything you said, but it seems to me that most of the examples that you gave, you know, it's not the EU, it's the UK government. Is there not a danger that you can kind of scapegoat the EU for every illiberalism that you don't like in this country, but in the end it's actually, as David will know, a lot of the kind of attacks on civil liberties are homegrown. Any, either of you want to pick up anything you've been said or anything else, just quickly? Yeah, I'll pick yeah. them up. I mean, well, the first thing is, um, part of the reason you're totally uh, is actually we can just do nothing about it. That's the infuriating thing. I mean, you're right. I mean, most of the civil liberties attacks don't come from the European Union. They come from the British government, uh, which I'm supposedly a supporter. <laughs> Let me just pick up some specific points. Somebody asked for specific examples of the anti-democratic aspects. Well, there's... Apart from the ones already mentioned, there's uh, Avramopoulos, who is the migration commissioner, uh, who also added to the comments by saying we can make better migration policy because we don't have to pay attention to the voters. Um, the BSE example that Vicky mentioned, I, I was actually the minister then. Um, I'm afraid she's wrong. 
It was two years. We were eating our own beef for two years, but we weren't allowed to export it either to the European Union or, indeed, anywhere else. Nelson Mandela made us an offer to buy British beef cheap, and it was stopped by the European Commission. What the hell has it got to do with that? Uh, so we were overruled. 72 failures of, um, uh, of our attempts to change uh, their policy. There's another one. 4,000 regulations a year, minor, but all of them individually, tiny erosions of democracy. Um, somebody asked about Brexit benefit in the NHS. Well, the first thing is we wouldn't have to recruit unqualified Eastern European uh, uh, medical staff and we, and we would be able to recruit more people from the rest of the world uh, which is what we can't do now and some of the pressures, uh, population pressures on the NHS would, would be reduced and I do want to pick up on this issue of the idea of two, the two questions, one about how many countries will have a referendum and will we liberate them to, uh, to comment and, and make decisions themselves I think one of the likely outcomes is not the Michael Gove if it is, I didn't hear him make it, but if he did make an argument of uh, the breakup of the EU, the likely uh, outcome is that the Nordics will kick up a fuss. And the Nordics are very sensible, responsible countries, all of them. And the Commission will have to pay more attention than they have or have so far. And that will be one good internal democratic effect on the EU of us leaving. Okay, thanks. Uh, Bruno, whatever you want to pick up. Yeah, I mean, <coughs> I can't really understand this debate about, oh, it's the wrong kind of Brexit debate. <laughs> I mean, it was basically Paul Mason's argument in The Guardian uh, yesterday. Oh, I don't want this Brexit. It's a Tory Brexit. What I want is a Labour Brexit. I mean, politics just doesn't uh, work like that. It happens to be the case that the issue of a referendum of some kind or another, whether it's on a treaty or... European Union has been um, pretty high on the agenda for at least uh, a decade. It is certainly something that has dogged uh, David Cameron um, in his time as aspirant Conservative leader, Conservative leader uh, and Prime Minister. The fact that he has to respond to the internal dynamics um, of his own um, Conservative uh, Party um, is probably uh, more uh, or less um, a, a good thing. Can we magic up something? Well, let's have the argument. Um, the EU, uh, I happen to believe, is founded on organisational, moral and political premises, which I think are wrong. They're wrong now today um, when the Conservatives have triggered an in-out referendum. They'd be wrong tomorrow if Jeremy Corbyn was to do the same thing uh, a few years uh, down the, the road. It's a matter of principle. I rejoice um, in the fact that for once probably for over 30 years, a vote will take place in the United Kingdom where a majority must be found throughout the whole UK on a decision of real consequence. For the last few general elections, too, too many of them that I care to remember, the debate has effectively been targeted at a few marginal uh, constituencies, targeting swing voters who are invariably... Um, part of the great British middle class, for once our politicians have to find a majority of the whole population. That is a really, really good thing. I don't care who called this referendum. It's a point of principle for me. I want to fight it out. I want there to be a lot of noise. I want there to be a lot of conflict, a lot of contest um, over this vote. And I want a high 
turnout. Okay, thank you. Um, right. Vicky and Simon, anything you want to pick up? My general question to you is, I mean, it's been reflected a little bit, this is hardly, you know, with people saying, I'm a reluctant Remainer. And I, I don't think that either of you Im implied this, but I have noticed, because I've done quite a lot of these kind of discussions, that there is a sense of, we know the problems of the EU, but it's better to be in, rather than a kind of really passionate engagement with it as a project. And I, and I, I mean, is that problematic? Or is it just the nature of sort of status quo position that you just can't kind of, you know, wax lyrical every five minutes? But, but is there a problem of not having that? And then the second thing is, whether we like it or not, this kind of view of popular democracies being undermined by the institutions themselves, just the, 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 the whole philosophical venture of the EU undermining popular sovereignty, I think at some point you should address it, even if you don't do it quite now. Uh, because I think that's kind of serious thing you have to take up. But anyway, either of you, both, well, both of you, who wants to start with anything? Oh, well, I'll, I'll start on, on the question over there first, if, if I may, which is that, um, just to be clear, what I said is most organisations are neutral, or at least they're presenting themselves as neutral, uh, but they have been, uh, including the, the, the British Chambers of Commerce, which is no longer, of course, run by John Longford, who I know well and love, really. But they do poll their members. Uh, and and it, it, with the exception of the EEF, which is the Engineering Employees Federation, which is basically the Manufacturers uh, Association, which is quite act proactive, really, in terms of um, lobbying for, or at least arguing the case for staying. Uh, the others have retained a neutral stance, but you've all probably been reading... Uh, the CBI's uh, Director General, who's actually, I think, has been quite vocal about uh, killing some of the facts that supposedly, which are coming from, uh, from the, uh, the, the Brexit side. Uh, so, so there is indeed exactly, as, as Bruno was saying, or perhaps it was, it was David who was saying it, um, a, a lot of, of, of heat, actually, which is generated on both sides. But I think the, the figures and the, 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 the points that John was mentioning and making on the Today programme, which uh, I, I listened to, uh, is about the, the distribution of, of the, the survey within the overall 57 or 54 to 37% now, 54 to stay, 37 to, to leave, um, which is that those who don't export to Europe at all uh, are more inclined to vote to leave by a small margin than those that do. But the interesting thing is that if you then split the results by size, every size, whether it's large, medium, small, micro-businesses, there's still a majority there in each case. Uh, so actually, the majority of the firms that employ people are there. And if you look at the CBI, four out of five, and they include, of course, very big firms, and 71% of the small firms want to stay uh, that are members of the CBI. So actually, we're talking about a very substantial percentage uh, of, of, uh, of businesses who employ most people to actually want to stay. So I think that's a, it's a very important part, thing to bear in mind. But in terms of, so in terms of, of um, what, what Claire was asking, which is passion, I mean, perhaps the problem of the Remain side is that it has been trying to put, you know, uh, arguments and, and figures and focus a lot on the economy. And yes, okay, Cameron will say various things. But, but the most extraordinary thing is that all these people that we know and love and trust, here we are in the UK saying, we want to be our own, our own uh, nation, we want to decide our own things, we don't trust their bureaucracy, we, we think we're much better than that. So what does the, remain, so the Brexit side do? It trashes every 
every part of the, of the, if you want to call it the establishment, every part of our ruling uh, and representative bit of our democracy uh, that we have working for us, such as the Treasury, the Bank of England, any think tank perhaps, which is also very highly acclaimed, wins all the prizes when they say that actually it's going to be pretty tough. And they say it's nonsense, it's, it's the elites, it's teenage scribblers, um, and why should we... And then, of course, the IMF says the same, my God, uh, the IMF. Now, I thought until Great. recently we loved the IMF. And, and it goes on like that, it's the OECD. So we just have to watch it. And the final thing about um, the point that Dave, Dave's made, about, or perhaps, about the rosy outlook. I don't think, uh, and this is perhaps one of the problems there, um, I don't think anyone is saying that even on Remain, and Carney, the, the head of the Bank of England, has made that very clear, things are going to be particularly easy because there is a world slowdown going on. There are the problems of the euro still to, to deal with. China is, is a problem, etc., etc. So, So to be accused of, of suddenly having rosy spectacles on, on Europe is just not true. And perhaps that is one of the problems, whereas the other side seem to think it is going to be rosy if we leave. It's all going to be wonderful. Well, this side is saying, I think we're slightly more realistic about this, and we're telling you the truth. Okay, Simon. <laughs> Uh, the second time tonight, I don't want to give the impression that I'm in any way uh, complacent about democracy or, or uh, un, you know, un, unaware of the, 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 the political times that we live in. We live in very strange political times in many ways. A lot of, you know, around the world we're seeing a lot of politicians, not just in Europe, getting, um, doing very well politically by, by offering very simple, simplistic, I think, simple solutions to complex problems. And I, where I differ, you know, and I th but where I differ from the other side is I don't think that all these, the problems that worry people in Britain all stem from the EU. I note that the Brexiters in the Conservative Party were anti the EU, even when the European economy was doing well, even when London was booming. When David Cameron made his Bloomberg speech three years ago, he didn't even mention migration. So, you know, the things that are dominating this campaign <clears throat> weren't the things that were worrying people before. Uh, so I think we, you know, we have a tendency to, the Brexit government tended to impute everything that goes wrong in this country to the, EU, to the EU, and I think that's a trend that's around the whole of Europe. But you can't blame the EU for the rise of Donald Trump, and that should give us some pause to thought. You, know, you can't, I mean, it may be that, uh, uh, you can't, I don't think anyone would seriously argue that the, that the rise of Donald Trump is due to America's disastrous single currency experiment. So, you know, I think, so, you know, or that Putin is, that, that, that Putin's, uh, aggression is due to, you know, frustration with vacuum cleaner rules. So I think that you know, the EU is not to blame for everything uh, that's gone wrong here. But I do think that the question about what will happen uh, in the rest of Europe if we vote to leave is something very important. It goes to the heart of the question about the NHS. I, don't, I think the answer is absolutely that nobody knows. Nobody knows at all. If, you know, if in, nobody knows, in, the politics of 28 countries will determine what happens after we leave. It could be that in France, Le Pen will call for a referendum, that the Republicans, the Conservative Party, will feel obliged then to call for a referendum, and then before you know it, every party in France will be having a referendum. In, in Netherlands the other day, they had a referendum on whether to accept uh, this treaty, this uh, new trading deal with Ukraine. Uh, you know, so you, we could have expected that uh, any deal that we try to negotiate uh, with the EU after we leave there could be a referendum in the Netherlands over whether to accept it, and in dozens of other countries too. So 
I think the answer is nobody knows what the political impact is going to be. But I think that, that the fact that there's going to be so much uncertainty will be, in the short term, very economically debilitating and damaging. And so the question about the NHS is very relevant. We spend about 1%, less than 1% of GDP on our EU membership. If the, EU, if the UK economy contracts by less than 1% as a result of leaving the EU, there will be a hole in our budget, and, and that will have an impact on the NHS. That is the answer to your question about the NHS. Huge short-term uncertainty, long-term damage, and that will have big implications for how we manage our own economy. Okay, right. Panel, sit back, because what's now happening is a public conversation is happening. I'm going to whiz round. Quick points, and of course, that gentleman's first. Those of you with the talent for spotting accents will spot mine. And in respect of the rarity of European federalists, uh, I would like to say that I'm a passionate European federalist because I've seen other federations, including the United States, Canada, Australia, and Germany, which are among the most successful and democratic countries in the world. So I would, my question for the panel is, what's wrong with emulating the United States? Um, okay, shh, shh. That gentleman there who's got the thing, then the guy with the blue. Yeah, and then I'll move to you. Right. I just want to pick up on a point made by the gentleman in the uh, striped top here, in the middle here, which I think is quite representative of the view that Remain side have won the economic argument, but they're a bit uh, sort of evasive on the democratic point. I think that's quite a common perception, but I think it's informed, I think, an unnecessary defensiveness on the levers on the economic side. And I agree entirely this vote should be decided primarily on the politics, the accountability, the sovereignty issue. But I think a much more robust case could be made by those leaving to actually say that the economic argument is completely unproven. That there can be no compelling certain uh, economic argument either for or against, either for staying or for leaving, for the very simple reason that what happens in the future depends upon what we policymakers do about it. Not just in Britain, but what Janet Yellen does in America, what happens in Europe, what happens in uh, China. Policymakers, people making decisions, is what's going to determine uh, the future. And there is this bizarre view at the moment from the uh, uh, Remain side that somehow the British economy is doing great at the moment and we shouldn't rock the boat at all. That the British economy is strong, Partly the assertion is because we're in the EU and we shouldn't change anything because it will, everything will go to, to hell in, in, in a basket or whatever. The economic prospects for Britain are based on basically two things. The fundamentals today and what policies are made tomorrow. And I have to say, I think the, on the fundamentals, people are telling, uh, 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 are, are rather glossing the current situation. The British economy is not strong today. It's in a dire state. Productivity, as Vicky admitted, actually has barely changed in the last eight years. Uh, living standards are flat. Most people have seen no income rise for some time. So we've got an appalling, awful state in the, in the economy. I don't blame the EU for that. I don't blame regulation. I don't blame the trading arrangements or anything. But I certainly say it's unprovable that being in the EU has somehow made Britain better than it would have been because we cannot know what that counterfactual uh, is. So I would argue that... Uh, the argument to say things are great, don't change, is a very defensive argument. We can be much more robust and say, actually, it's in our hands to change things. And actually, if we had that sovereignty, we'd be able to take one of the opportunities would be to create a policy, an alternative policy, which we could 
work out together, implement, change, modify, experiment with, which maybe could do something about that fundamental of low productivity. That's one of the benefits of actually getting out of the control of Europe. Okay, thank you very much. That, that gentleman in the blue, now, is this gentleman, blue, you carry on. So profit margins, competition, productivity, the free movement of capital. This is the language which Vicky Price used to justify an institution which is right now in the process of ripping apart the social fabric of an entire nation, Greece. And I think it's interesting, at least for me, when I, a socialist, an active trade unionist of Greek extraction and born in the UK, when I find myself agreeing almost wholeheartedly with David Davis, rather than the hollow technocratic language used by Vicky Price, a Greek liberal economist, I think the Remain camp has a problem, and that is its failure to address in an honest way the social catastrophe in Greece and the unfolding catastrophe across southern Europe. So my question to Vicky is, I would like to hear a little bit more about your analysis of the situation in Greece. And David Davis, seemingly one of the very few decent Tory MPs, I'd be very interested to hear more about your views of the Greek crisis and its lessons for the Brexit campaign. Thanks. So, it seems that one of the elements that's been forgotten in the discussion is about what happens if the UK votes for Brexit on the 23rd of June. Because then Article 50 starts to operate. And there's a lot of process happening in the negotiation table in which actually the UK is not a member of the negotiation table. So all the 27 states will have a say on the terms of the negotiation where the UK will sit down and wait for two years. And if there's no agreement, well, that's it. So I wonder, from the Leave side, the question is, how will the process go? Or what, what kind of guarantees are that the UK will not have something really bad for two years during this process? And the other thing is that one of the issues that usually in academic or political debates you um, somehow do not mention is immigration, because it's a kind of a tricky, nasty topic to talk about, because of, of course there's an issue there. But the polls say that actually one of the drivers for the Leave side is the immigration question. So I want you to address the issue. So what happens with immigration? What happens with a closing boundaries? What happens with the free movement of EU um, citizens across the UK? Uh, uh, thank you, because I think that is... I, I had noticed that that hasn't come up. And although you can be concerned about immigration being the dominant debate in the EU... The idea that we get through the whole evening and not mention it would be a bit mad. Um, so thank you for raising that. But anyway, right, so that lady there's got it. Uh, we talk a lot about what will happen um, economically uh, if we leave. But I'd like to ask um, David Davis to address um, what happens politically in the 10 years' time if we stay. What might we be in store of? What might that look like? And secondly, very briefly, TTIP. How does this affect smaller um, companies who, who feel, frankly, bamboozled by the big guys? Okay, thank you. This is less of an in-out question and more of a sort of what-if question and a little bit of the reverse of the lady just before me. I think those on the, the leave side would concede that there are some benefits of membership of the EU. I know Mr Davis has been using the court in Luxembourg quite recently. Um, I'd like to hear the, the views of the whole panel how would the, the, the constitution, the culture, the character of Britain have to um, adapt if it were to leave the EU and sort of fill the gaps of those benefits? I would like to bring it back to a more human, uh, human level and talk a little bit about demographics. 
Um, my name is George. I'm originally from Portugal. I've been living in this country for 17 and a half years. I arrived here uh, a young adult, and I've been working since then. I'm, a, uh, um, I'm an active worker, an active contributor to, to this country. And since I, uh, since I grew up in the Algarve, it is fair to, to assume that there was a direct swap between me and a, pen, and a British pensioner that went to, uh, went to Portugal and, it, and now lives there and spends, and spends the whole day <laughs> sipping wine. Who, who, and who uses the geriatric services uh, that Portugal has to, um, has to, to provide. Now, some, somehow, this, this swap worked really, really well for both countries. It's, it's, it's great. What would happen if that swap would, uh, would be um, reverted? What would happen if Britain was, was flooded with, um, with non-active members of society and, was, and, and people like me were taken away? Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Right, that lady there, oh God, I can't take you all, so it just, just yes, carry on. Uh, one thing that hasn't been mentioned is the effect of the um, European Union on rights of individual working people, things like the European Working Time Directive, things like maternity rights. In, in, the, in the US, there are no paid maternity rights. I have a horrible feeling that this is one of the hidden agendas behind Brexit, that every human right of working people can be trashed. So that is my deepest fear. I, no, I want to ask you, do you think everybody who's for Brexit has got a secret agenda to destroy the human rights of working people? Some of them have, people like Rupert Murdoch. We know where we are now, we've got it. <laughs> right. uh, on the back row there, please. On the as, so surprisingly, uh, I'm quite depressed by this whole discussion. Uh, it's been quite technocratic. It's been quite uh, based on what we're going to lose either way. I, I just want someone to make a positive argument either way uh, for why we should stay or why we should leave. Okay, thank you. This yeah. question is for David Davis. Um, just like the question over here about uh, what happens to the politics in 10 years' time when we leave, I'm asking more about the economic situation when we may be forced to um, take up the euro. I, w I want to know what the, 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 the euro. I, w I want to know what your opinion is on, on Britain taking the euro or keeping the pound sterling. Uh, yes, sir. Yes. Um, first of all, I'd like to agree with the person in the suit who made the point that really we cannot predict what the economy is going to do, certainly not in 2030. It's pointless. Um, I personally consider the best, uh, the best analysis I've seen came from Capital Economics. Vicky, somebody or other, is the chief economist there. Red. And, uh, Red, and she's uh, got a 15-minute presentation on YouTube last October, and her conclusion basically was that it's not going to be nearly as bad or good as either side says. Um, so I don't think economy, the econ economy is going to be the issue. Um, and I was very interested that your subtitle for this discussion was what's going to decide it, because I think it's the democratic deficit at the end of the day. And, and I think David Cameron's made a huge mistake by not having on his desk, it's the democratic deficit, stupid. You know, um, the lady behind me asked, asked for three examples of, of uh, the problems, the anti-democratic nature of the EU. So here they are. First of all, there's Europol, the European police force. Europol has immunity from prosecution. Why? 
since 1215, it's been a bulwark of our constitution that nobody is above the law, not even the monarch, but Europol is. We can prosecute our policemen, we can prosecute Interpol, but if Europol was in charge of Hillsborough, there's nothing we could do about it. The second issue, the second anti-democratic issue, is our lack of control of VAT. Now, in these difficult times, I'd suggest that maybe it would be a great help to struggling families if we could remove VAT from gas and electricity. But because we put VAT on in 1990 for the industry and 1994 for, for domestic, we can't get rid of that without the consent of all the other EU members and um, the EU Parliament. And, and thirdly, there's the question, when I was a teenager, a child, socialists, uh, and I don't agree with this, I might add, but socialists were dead keen on abolishing private education because they felt it gave an unfair advantage uh, to the wealthy. That was in the, in the 60s and 70s. But even if, if uh, a socialist came to power and wanted to put that policy through, it's not possible because the EU bans it. So those are three examples of the, the anti-democratic nature, and that's why I feel um, we, we're on a slippery slope. Okay, so that's... Somebody over there has got the microphone. Um, I was glad to hear at the start an argument around uh, for, for the Remain campaign that the EU enables us to all act in a collective interest against collective problems. Um, but because that's always been a, a big positive, I think, for the EU and why I'd vote to Remain. But during the migrant crisis, that didn't seem to work. Um, and the nations just acted in their own interests and the EU seemed to fail in that respect. So I'd just like to know from you... Why do you think that didn't work then? And do you think the EU has learned lessons from that and will we be able to uh, act in, against problems like that better in the future? And for the Brexiters, why do you think that a Europe without the EU would be able to deal with a, cri a crisis like that better? The gentleman on the far right was very excited about the far right over here. Yes. <laughs> uh, was very excited. <laughs> excited far about... Left. Uh, <laughs> Depends which way you're looking at it. About the idea of the referendum, that the more people who vote in this referendum, the better. But what is clear about this debate is the arguments are very complicated. There's no question about that. There are so many imponderables here. And yet, we're giving this choice to the vast majority of this population. When you think of the effects of democracy, you see the rise of Donald Trump. This is the kind of what democracy produces. Is the referendum the right way to decide this kind of question? <laughs> Let's be frank. Let's be frank. He did say something that we know a lot of people think, even though when you hear him say it, you do think, ooh. But there you go. Anyway, <laughs> there are anti-democratic trends in the country. Yes, he's... Hi, I'm sorry, I don't want to be um, negative or fearful. However, I was just wondering if we... Well, have we got ourselves into a bit of a pickle having decided that we're going to have a referendum? Because does that give the EU more power if we do stay? Does that mean that then they'll be able to push through more things that we perhaps wouldn't want because now they think, well, the, the country has voted to stay so they can do whatever they like? I think one of the points that David made at the quite beginning of his speech about the way that Europe vote, European countries see Europe and how we see it is very important. And I do, I do go along with that. I mean, I have people working for me who are Spanish, Italian and German, very intelligent people. But their view of Europe compared to my view of Europe is completely different. And in their minds, distrust of politicians, actually, which is ironic given what they're prepared to support, is, is paramount. So the Spanish people work for me do not trust Spanish politicians, but bizarrely trust 
bureaucrats in Brussels. Simon, with respect, I do think you are complacent about democracy, not just the curt dismissal of the vote in Holland or the explanation that the, the uh, explanations about elections don't matter were taken out of context. Just look at the history of the last 15 years. Look at the votes in Ireland dismissed. Look at the votes in Holland, as you just did, dismissed. Look at the votes in, in, in Portugal dismissed. The, the European project is itself anti-democratic, and I think you are here, unfortunately, being apologists for this. I think you are very weak on the question of popular sovereignty. Okay, thank you. Right, somebody's got the microphone there, and then there's a young lady here in the white. Carry on. Yeah. Hello. Um, if the lack of uh, democracy and democratic accountability is a problem in the EU, and I believe that many citizens in all 28 countries would agree, why the solution is uh, Brexit rather than reform of the European Parliament, for instance, which is very weak? And what will happen to the City of London? Uh, will it be able to maintain its current leading position if we leave single market, hence uh, single passporting uh, regime uh, will not be valid anymore. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm a teacher in South London and I've got year 13 tomorrow morning for a British political history class and a lot of them are of voting age and despite all my efforts to kind of tell them about the history of the EU, a lot of them are not even sure they're going to vote, they don't know which way they're going to vote and I kind of, in a way, slightly back this idea that is this issue so complicated that it's actually switched a lot of people off. Um, so my question to you is tomorrow morning at 9am, how am I going to ignite my students to vote <laughs> in the election coming up? Hello, um, Simon, Vicky, you know how many MEPs there are in London, don't you? How many people here know how many MEPs are in London? Hands up, be honest. Do you know how many MEPs there are in London? Right. Well, we've got about two people who do know, so I'm saying if you can't have any political traction because you don't even know who the MEPs are or how many of them there are, how are you going to get the economic traction? Simple as that. Okay, thank you. Uh, all right, go on, go on, go on. Quick. Just to, thank you. Just to address that point, well, that's partly because the MEPs don't hardly have any... Sorry hardly have any power anyway. The job of the European Parliament is to scrutinise legislation that comes from the European Commission. It's not to set legislation. Um, it also has very little power to block uh, or to reform it. I've um, got a question for David Davis. Um, yeah. uh, compared to the last referendum in 1975, there seems to be very few progressive or social democratic figures that are arguing for reform of the EU or a Brexit. So uh, obviously Tony Benn's not with us anymore or Barbara Castle or Michael Foote. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn appears to have decided to, on balance... Uh, uh, sold out's the word you use. Uh, <laughs> uh, ..argue in favour of the EU, maybe because of the social chapter. So I'm just wondering, does that make it more difficult for yourself as a, as a progressive Conservative to sort of argue for the case against staying in the EU or perhaps having a, a reformed EU or even Britain uh, going down the Norway route of joining the EEA? OK, that, that gentleman there, please. Uh, yeah, you, sir. Hello. Um, just a daft end of the evening point. A uh, bit of crystal ball reading, I guess, from the pre Brexit side. Because um, we hear a lot about what's going to possibly go on after the... If, you know, if, if we do have Brexit on the economic side. But I'm wondering, briefly, I guess, is, 
do you think that it's possible, can it happen or will it happen, that politics in the UK can actually become vibrant again? Can politics be reset? I'd love the Labour Party to split up. I thought it was going to do that. I'd also love the Conservative Party to split up. Can, I think there needs to be an element of the Brexiters reselling politics and the possibilities for things being different to what they were years ago. Okay, thank you very much. Right. Okay, so... Yeah, yes, you speak. In terms of a, another exa anti-democratic example uh, and a, a policy that I absolutely hate, the Scottish Parliament has voted to introduce minimum unit pricing on alcohol, right? The EU is blocking that uh, on, the, on the grounds of the single market. I think people in Scotland should be allowed to decide whether there's minimum unit pricing or not, even though I hate it. Um, and in terms of the teacher back there about how do I inspire my class tomorrow, you ask them, do you want the power in the future for general elections to really mean something because you will decide you know, who governs you and who doesn't govern you? And if you do want that power, then you should vote to leave the EU. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, yes, and then um, yeah, One of the great stats I've discovered over the course of this campaign, in France, it's a record low number of people who support the, the EU. I think it's about 60%, which in France is kind of hitherto unknown to be that low. Um, but apparently if Brexit happens, if we vote to leave, that figure rises to 75% who want to stay in the EU, which kind of, in a way, kind of highlights some of the, the problems that I've, you realise with the European project, is that every single time people try to inspire you about it, they, they, you know, they, they tell you about the kind of brotherhood of man, they bring it together. And if we talk about the UK leaving, then that may lead to France leaving, uh, that will turn to soccer to the far right across the nation. It will turn to countries turning to war on each other. And you do think, well, that's, doesn't that indicate the European project has failed in some way if we've learned nothing from these years of cooperation? Isn't it a bit, sometimes a bit false in the way in which it's, it's set up to suggest that we will simply revert to 1939 if we, um, if, if we decide to kind of vote against what is essentially a kind of trading block and a political block? Is it not sometimes overstating the case? And actually, are there some kind of positive cases that can be made for... European integration um, that are independent of the EU? Is there actually a kind of Europe together outside of the EU? Okay, thanks. Um, and then a final point from the floor, and then I'm going to take the panel in reverse order, you know, sort of 60 to 90 seconds each. I know, impossible, but give us your last final shot. Uh, <clears throat> Kerry Dingle from the charity World Right and Citizen TV station World Bites. Quickly, I'm for open borders, not no borders but open borders, which presumes democracy, control, something to campaign for and something we decide upon. I'd like to know, it has been mentioned earlier, I'd like to know from all the panel, your view on more people on the planet, more people in Britain, more freedom of movement, because I think that is the only pro-human position to have, and I think that means not a trade-off, but Brexit, because without leaving the EU, we can never make those decisions and support our peers and move freely ourselves. I think that one of the most important things, regardless of whether you're for or against, is this idea of sh shaking up the kaleidoscope. So I know that Simon's a bit nervous about that, but I, but I do think and hope that what we should do between now and the referendum, whatever happens, is, is that we shake up the political kaleidoscope to kind of ensure that there's a vibrant political argument and discussion in the country. And it, just, it is just utterly not good enough to allow any 18-year-old and above 
to go whatever. I mean, you just got to shout at them, right? I mean, they might shout at the tally. I mean, who do they think they are? I mean, come on, right? This is a big deal, right? You can't just kind of go, oh, I don't know if I can be bothered. It's all a bit complicated. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the world that you live in and you've got to make this decision. Never be able to moan about anything unless you take that uh, responsibility of doing lots of reading, by the way. You know, uh, this idea that it's young people, so, you know, it's very complicated, so you can't expect them to read. I mean, you know, come on. Especially amongst the education profession, this has become a popular one. And you do think, no wonder we're in trouble. Um, yeah, read articles, books, think about it, and really get them rowing over it, because it's that important. So I just think if nothing else comes out, we've got to at least come back. Right. Reverse order. Simon Nixon, your final shot at the argument. <laughs> uh, well, there were so many points, Guy. Obviously, can't. This, this political point again. You know, I understand the point that people are making. I also, uh, you know, take the. You know, we, are, we live in this very strange time with globalization, technology change. People feel very insecure around the world. People look to. Well, a lot of people feel very insecure around the world. Right. A lot of people feel very insecure around the world. They look to their state, they look to their government to protect them. And they feel that the governments in this globalized world are unable to protect them. I get that, I understand that. My issue is. The question for me is, is, the, uh, uh, is Brexit, is, is a national, going to a national, you know, complete, uh, the nationalist approach, is that the way that we protect ourselves better from these forces that are affecting us in society and in the world right now? That for me is the question. And you look at the, uh, and as I say, I think a lot of these issues that are facing us are common challenges to the whole of Europe. We can't wish ourselves to be in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. We live where we live. Our island is where it is. We are not immune to the challenges that are going on the rest of the continent. Our border is the border with the EU, uh, the EU's external border, and it would be that border even if the EU didn't exist. We can't, we would be, we would, uh, the Russian aggression in Eastern Europe would be an issue for us whether the EU exists or not. So I come back to the point I made at the beginning. The question is, is the EU a, an it's still a way of solving common problems uh, together and common challenges. And I think that, you know, that this is not the only, this issue of sovereignty, I think, look, let's be clear about this. In, the, in a modern globalized world, we have to pull sovereignty in all sorts of different ways. We talk about, the, we're talking here about the EU, but we haven't talked about the rule of the sea. We haven't talked about the World Health Organization or NATO or the World Trade Organization. All of these are in their different ways infringements on our sovereignty and our democratic rights or you know that people have talked about you know somebody said should we be having this referendum or not you know well personally i'm a bit of a you know my i my i'm a sort of parliamentary democracy i think is a better you know is a, is uh, uh, is how, you know what we live in in this country traditionally where we we send people to parliament to you know to 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 uh, to to, to, to look at these issues for us. I'm, so I think that it is a very complicated thing, but we have this referendum. But I would say that the question for me at the heart of it is, is the EU still a mechanism for dealing with commons, problem problems? I think we are facing enormous problems in the world right now and in Europe. Uh, and I think that we are better able to address those challenges working with the rest of Europe than trying to go in a national solution, trying to do this on our own. And I, that, would be, that for me would be... Uh, that, I'm not sure that's how I would explain it to an 18-year-old, by the way. Uh, the 18-year-old, I would say, I would say that uh, if we, you know, that they will be the ones who will suffer 
if we come out of the EU, if, uh, from, they will be the ones who will, who, for whom the, you know, who will bear the penalty in terms of jobs and the economy if it goes down. They're the ones whose opportunities will be stymied. So I think that, but, but for everybody else, I would just say that, that the Europe, in, for all its imperfections, is still a way to deal with common problems and the, the more uh, and new problems will emerge over the years and they will require different forms of integration and different, different types of solutions and the EU is a mechanism for dealing with that and we should stay with it. Thanks Simon. Bruno. Quick sprint. Um, the question over there, I'll answer it rather than David Davis. As a, a radical social democrat, a Marxist with a sort of Arendtian wing, um, I do find it odd to be here on a, a platform uh, with David Davis, but I don't care because um, essentially it is a debate um, that we should be um, having. I think it's very unfortunate that many people who say they're of the left have given up on questions um, of uh, democracy and often of civil liberties um, too. And they're scared of the Tories because they don't think they can stand up um, for their own um, interests. They want a prince from uh, on high um, to uh, deliver. I don't think the EU is to, uh, uh, to blame um, for everything um, uh, at all. I think the EU, as I explained, um, is the product of a culture uh, within our elites, which is to avoid uh, questions of accountability, but also um, to avoid uh, reality. I see the fact that the EU emancipates the state from our communities, our territories, um, our workplaces from us as a really, really big problem. I see Brexit as the beginning of getting to grips with how Britain is used. I talked to a very senior British government official who I really can't name, and he's, a, he's from the Treasury. Um, and he, he's, of course, against uh, Brexit, because he's a Mandarin. Um, but he was going, oh, but you know what? It would be quite exciting. We'd have to have a trade policy. We'd have to have an agriculture policy. We'd have to decide whether we want to strip away um, workplace rights like the 48-hour uh, working week. What a battle that would be. We would have to decide. There would be nowhere for our rulers to hide. Our rulers would no longer be able to turn around and say, oh, well, you know, um, the reason why there aren't enough uh, school places and your train's crowded and you can't afford to buy a house in London um, is because of people from Eastern Europe. Um, there's nothing we can do about that because of the EU treaty. They would no longer be able to say, say that. There would be nowhere to hide. I see that as very, very positive. I see um, a vote for Brexit as the beginning of getting to grips ourselves with the problems that our societies face and they do need to change. So what I'd say to the 18-year-olds um, is, well, look, you've got to vote um, because if it's a Brexit vote, David Cameron says um, it could end uh, in war. Um, and if it is a Brexit vote and it opens a bright new dawn of accountability and democracy um, in Britain, you might be um, like those Berliners who regretted staying at home in November 1989. Thank you very much. Well, there are so very many issues. I'll, uh, again, I'll try and go through them quickly, but um, it, I think it is worth remembering, and I think it is important to say that to the children tomorrow morning who might vote, 
that actually the UK government and the mandarins under him, I used to be one, um, make most of the decisions about this economy. Most of the social decisions, with some small exceptions where we have agreed to accept um, uh, a wider uh, set of rules, which actually benefit us quite considerably. Uh, and yes, I think the lady who asked the question about women's rights and everything else, absolutely, I think at the first opportunity, it is entirely possible that a conservative government or someone else will take all those away. This is why the union, this is not an elite against the people. The unions are all in favor of staying in Europe. Uh, and the Greek situation, I mean, very interesting you mentioned that. I would quite like to have a chat with you afterwards. Um, I think the, the Greek situation is a disaster. There is no doubt about it. Uh, and of course, Greece has been treated appallingly. But I'm afraid you're falling into the trap. The Greek people don't want to leave the EU. There is democratic decision. They have made the decision to stay in. So, so for you to say they should, they should actually go, if they decide that, the government right now knows that the majority of the Greeks want to stay. So therefore, it doesn't dare to leave or do anything different to what it's doing at present. This is a very left-wing government which is doing right-wing things that are forced on it because it knows that the mandate they have is to do exactly that. On migration more generally, and I think the question about the National Health Service is so correct. Uh, there is a serious issue that the way that the Brexit campaign is developing, it, it is becoming a xenophobic, and I mentioned migration and the economic benefit, but it's also becoming one against foreigners. And I think the Portuguese example was a very, very good one. I'm, of course, a migrant too. There are times when I do three euro debates a day, and I'm sorry if I'm technocratic, but I do focus on the economy. But the most extraordinary thing is that on one of those days, on two of the debates, clearly there is a new sheet that comes on every day from the Vote Leave campaign, um, both speakers said to the audience, and therefore they lost the argument completely, did you know, they said, that 500 women were turned away from maternity wards because migrants had taken over their beds? I mean, that is the sort of thing that makes you really stop and think, is that the sort of England we want? Is that the sort of UK we want? And of course, there is an answer. And the answer is, I'm afraid, all these babies that were born by those British-born people, supposedly, or even by those migrants, would never have been delivered if it wasn't for a migrant workforce, which actually helps you have those children. The National Health Service would collapse. So in terms of the positives, the positives are that our future is considerably better staying in, yes, reforming things if that's what we want to do, and forgetting history is the worst thing you can do. And Phil over there, who actually mentioned it, if you forget the fact that what is happening right now, which is that because of the concern of Brexit, it is that reason why we're not doing particularly well. Of course, there is the world environment too. People are not investing, people are not hiring. They're very worried about the impact. The financial sector, the city that was mentioned, has a real drop in confidence. Just look at the facts. All I'm asking from our side is don't ignore history and don't ignore what is going on right now when you're promising people things that are simply not deliverable. Sadly, there are far too many questions to answer individually. I'm going to pick up two. 
individual questions, but just for, uh, for example, really. Uh, somebody asked, or a couple of people asked, about the whole question of benefits in the EU, how we're going to replace them, what are the rights of workers, and so on. I remind you, by the way, that Stuart Rose said wages would go up if uh, after Brexit he was the leader of uh, the staying campaign. The simple truth is, we didn't get most of these benefits from the EU. I mean, go back. The, 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 the youngsters should go back and read about Disraeli, Shaftesbury, Lloyd George, Attlee, and all the people who created the template for most of the world's welfare states uh, and protection of poor people. So we didn't need to go to the EU to get those, and it's for us to choose whether we have them. We are very lucky in this country. We have got more success, more wealth, more power, more influence, more civilization, more freedom than a country of our size deserves to expect. And it's not because we are smart people. It's because we've got a fantastically privileged institutional history you know, that gives us democracy, freedom, uh, justice, integrity. All those things are built into our structures. So somebody asked, what's the positive argument here? Well, I'll tell you this. The positive argument involves democracy. That's fabulously important. It involves free trade. We didn't talk about that enough sadly, but it involves that too. But mostly it's about controlling our own destiny. And that, by the way, somebody asked about vibrancy in politics. That'll galvanise vibrant politics if you hold all your politicians to account and they can't, ex they can't give you an excuse that the problems come from abroad. So I don't think that's at all a negative argument at all. That's an incredibly positive argument. It holds out a great future for us. And if, I, if you'll forgive me, Claire, I'm going to finish with uh, two lines of G.K. Chesterton, because uh, one of my favourite poems is called The Secret People. And the, uh, the first two words of it, and I'm going to bowdarise it slightly, is payers, passers, walk on buyers, but do not quite forget, for we are the people of Britain who never have spoken yet. Well, on the 23rd of June, they're going to speak, and I think they're going to choose a future that they're confident enough to grasp with both hands. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, whatever you do, make sure that you don't spend the next uh, month or so before the referendum not thinking about this issue. Think about it, argue about it, read about it. Let's make something happen, whichever way the vote goes. Can we thank our panel? Thank you very much. Thank you.